to today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Monday, January 29th. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker, and here is our first story. Fight over AEA's just beginning. Supporters share stories at Democratic Lawmakers Forum on proposed overhaul. This is by Grace King out of North Liberty. Taryn Butel, a school psychologist with Great Prairie AEA, was first a parent learning how to advocate for her children with disabilities. When her children were younger, Butel approached school leaders asking for help for her son with nonverbal learning disorder. The district we were in at the time was terrible to us. They called him lazy, which he was not, and told me if I were just a better parent, he wouldn't have these problems. I requested an evaluation for special education without really understanding what that was, Butel said. Eventually, Butel learned about Iowa's Area Education Agency that provide expertise to educators and families. Her son got the help he needed to succeed, and Butel was inspired to go back to school and help families who are struggling to navigate the special education system. Butel was one of dozens of educators and parents who spoke Sunday in opposition to a bill proposed by Governor Kim Reynolds earlier this month that would upend the way area education agencies function and what services they are able to provide. About 150 parents, educators, and concerned citizens packed a community room in the North Liberty Public Library on Sunday afternoon to advocate for AEAs. Extra chairs were brought in, and people who couldn't find seating made themselves comfortable sitting on the floor, standing against a wall, and overflowed into the hallway. Six Johnson County legislators were in attendance at the town hall organized by Senators Janice Weiner, a Democrat of Iowa City, and Zach Walls, a Democrat of Coralville. Absent were Republican lawmakers Senator Don Driscoll of Williamsburg, Representative Brad Sherman of Williamsburg, and Representative Heather Hora of Washington. Walls said they did not respond to an invitation. This crowd is incredible, and it speaks to the energy that has been activated around this issue, Walls said. This fight is not over. In fact, it is really just beginning. These next several weeks and months are going to be absolutely vital to make sure we protect the system that we just heard today is working for Iowa kids and families. Representative Adam Zabner, a Democrat of Iowa City, said people advocating for area agency, excuse me, area education agencies have already made a difference. The reason this is having trouble, even in the Republican caucus, is because there are all kinds of legislators who have had the same experience I have gotten, about 1,000 emails about this issue and not one in support of the bill, Sabner said. Butel said she is outraged over how the proposed legislation, based on ignorance, misrepresentation, and lies, would overhaul AEAs and stymie their ability to provide services to thousands of students. House Study Bill 542 would prohibit the agencies from offering services beyond special education for students, and school districts could drop their current agency and look elsewhere for the services. The Republican governor said the changes are needed because the state's nine area education agencies have grown beyond their core mission of serving students with disabilities, while Iowa's special education students perform below national averages. Reynolds said the agencies have become bloated and top-heavy since they were created in the 1970s, but still leave districts without choice but to pay for them anyway. Almost two weeks ago, Reynolds proposed loosening a main restriction in her bill that's caused heartburn for some lawmakers, parents, and teachers. This would allow AEAs to continue providing general education and media services if requested by school districts and approved by the Iowa Department of Education. 
It also would allow schools to retain their share of AEA funding for general education services. The amendment to the bill had not been filed as of Sunday evening. Representative Eleanor Levin, a Democrat of Iowa City, <clears throat> said agencies are inviolable in Iowa. Eleven days ago was the first time we heard from the governor that there would be an update to this bill, Levin said. Eleven days have gone by, and honestly, my guess is that the hope was that statement would calm things down. Today has proved we have not calmed down about this proposal, and we are not going to. AEAs provide disability services, counseling and mental health services, professional development, and other critical education functions in communities all across Iowa. The governor's plan would eliminate some of those services and consolidate others, raising serious concerns among educators, parents, and communities throughout the state. Teachers rely on the expertise of special education consultants in Iowa's area education agencies to create a plan for a child that helps them meet their academic goals. Jessica Roman, now a special education consultant with Grant Wood AEA, said as a teacher, AEA experts were at my fingertips for students with complex needs. Kim Cable, speech and language pathologist at Mississippi Bend AEA, is a parent of a child receiving early access, Iowa's early intervention system for infants and toddlers under three who are not developing as expected or who have a medical condition that can delay typical development. This program is delivered by AEAs and is not mentioned in the governor's bill, leaving educators and families worried about what the future of the program could look like. Cable's almost two-year-old son was born prematurely at 31 weeks gestational age, putting him at risk for significant developmental delays, she said. Her son spent 50 days in the neonatal intensive care unit, and early access was there for them before they left the hospital, Cable said. It's really instrumental for our family, she said. Amanda Whaley said area education agencies provided help when she was a teacher in several Iowa school districts, and special education consultants also were there to help cheer me on. Now a special education consultant with Mississippi Bend AEA, which serves more than 49,500 students in eastern Iowa, Whaley works with students with challenging behaviors who often need assisted technology. Assisted technology like mobility aids, screen reading software, and speech recognition software to learn, while used to provide special education services to children, is an expense that falls under technology and education services, services that would be cut if the bill passes. Brittany McDonald, a parent of three children in the Iowa City Community School District, received special education services herself when she was growing up. She was now in her final year of studying social work at the University of Iowa. Two of her children are meeting the goals of their individualized education plans, legal documents developed by parents, teachers, and AEA professionals for students who need special education, and will be exiting the program this year. McDonald said she is proud of how Grant Wood AEA, which provides services to Iowa City, has helped her and her family. Cole Gabriel shared that his child in elementary school in the Solon Community School District was recently evaluated for an IEP. He said AEA staff guide us nervous parents and help put our minds to rest as our children hopefully achieve everything they hope for. There was a team of kind, compassionate, and highly professional people sitting there walking us through, thankfully, what was the right services to get my child where they needed to be, Gabriel said. Staff with the AEA never made my child feel like a number, Gabriel said. 
I feel I can already see a difference in my child. The pride is their learning and catching up with their schoolmates. Anything that messes with that magic sauce that helps our children get from point A to point B and employs people it is, it is to help our children achieve their dreams is inappropriate and not up to the values of Iowa. Our next article, New Bill Requires More Info on Foreign Farmland, but those details wouldn't be shared with the public. This is by Aaron Jordan. Foreign investors or companies that own Iowa farmland would be required to report more detailed information to the Iowa government or face steep fines under a new bill introduced Thursday. Senate Study Bill 3113 would require the Iowa Secretary of State to do more tracking and reporting of foreign farmland ownership and give the Iowa Attorney General subpoena power to investigate violations. Iowa's law governing foreign ownership of agricultural land is one of the strictest in the nation. But as China's threats adapts, our laws should too, Governor Kim Reynolds said in her Condition of the State Address January 9th, because we cannot let foreign governments undermine the agricultural dominance our farmers have worked so hard to build. Reynolds said she wanted more transparency of foreign land ownership, but SSB 3113 requires all information reported to the Secretary of State be confidential. Even an annual report prepared by the agency for the governor and lawmakers would be shielded from the public. Iowa has nearly 514,000 acres of foreign-owned or leased farmland, according to the most recent data reported to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. More than 90% of those acres are in long-term leases for wind and solar projects, a Gazette investigation found. Other land was purchased before 1980 when Iowa prohibited most foreign ag land ownership. The Iowa Attorney General's office is reviewing whether the purchase of more than 75 acres of Lynn County farmland slated to be part of a large solar project near Coggin violates state law prohibiting foreign ownership of agricultural land. Developer Clenera Energy is owned by Enlight Renewable Energy Limited, based in Israel. Iowa's, Iowa's law already requires foreign farmland owners to register with the state, but SSB 3113 says new registrations must include names, addresses, birthplaces, and nationalities of owners and any agents or trustees who supervise the daily operation of the farmland. Foreign owners also must declare their purpose for conducting business in Iowa. Failure to register in a timely manner could carry a civil penalty of up to 25% of the assessed value of the land. The average value of Iowa farmland for 2023 was just under $12,000 per acre. So the fine for failure to report one 40-acre parcel could be $120,000 or more. Foreign owners also would be required to file a biennial report with the state or face a fine of up to $10,000. Iowa's 2024 legislative session has featured other bills that would affect Iowa's land, water, and air. Here are six introduced by Republicans who control both the House, Iowa House and Senate. House Study Bill 607 would allow animal feeding operations to keep spreading manure while a new manure management plan is under review or after state regulators have denied the plan, but it's being appealed. This would allow manure application during the review process and in the case of plan disapproval, 
until all legal remedies have been exhausted, which can be years, said Steve Vensey, retired Iowa State University employee and water quality advocate. The worst imaginable manure plans would get a free pass for years. The bill's sponsor, Representative Mike Sexton, a Republican of Rockwell City, is married to Becky Sexton, a consultant with Twin Lakes Environmental Services. Becky Sexton prepared a manure plan for Supreme Beef, an 11,600-head cattle feedlot near Monona. The Department of Natural Resources approved the plan in April 2021, but then a Polk County judge overturned it in April of 2023. The DNR told Supreme Beef after that ruling they could not remove manure from the site until they had an approved plan in place, which didn't happen until November 22nd. House File 2104 says the Iowa DNR can't buy land at auction and can't buy property from a nonprofit like the Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation to make it public land. Similar bills to limit the DNR or counties from acquiring more land for conservation or recreation have been proposed in 2019 and 2023, even though Iowa ranks near the bottom of states for its share of public land. Senate File 530 creates penalties for public bodies selling water. This bill was proposed months after parts of a northwest Iowa river ran dry because a local water utility was selling the water out of state. Senate File 520 would prohibit flying a drone over a secure farmstead without permission. A similar bill, House File 572, passed the Iowa House last year and now is being considered by a Senate subcommittee. These bills are a response to animal welfare groups using drones to show conditions at animal feeding operations and dog breeders. Senate Study Bill 3103 says the Iowa DNR would no longer be able to accept anonymous complaints about possible environmental violations. The bill says DNR complaints must include the complainant's name, and if the DNR chooses to investigate, the agency has to make the complainant's name known to the subject of the probe. For context, it was an anonymous complaint that first alerted the DNR to a fish kill on McLeod Run last spring caused by a water main break. Iowa Democrats have proposed some environmental bills too, but they don't have much chance of passage in a GOP-controlled state house. House File 2124 would place a moratorium on new animal confinement structures, and House File 2029 would require buffer strips between crops and waterways. Okay, I'm going to turn to the government notes section. The headline, Lynn County Seeks Summer EBT Funds. The Lynn County Board of Supervisors is asking the U.S. Department of Agriculture to disperse to the county federal summer EBT funds Republican Governor Kim Reynolds rejected to meet the nutritional needs of food insecure children and families. In a two-to-one vote last week, Supervisor Ben Rogers and Kirsten Running Marquardt both Democrats, signed on to the letter Rogers drafted to send to U.S. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack. It formally asks to receive and disperse funds in partnership with local nonprofit providers. Reynolds opted instead for a state-funded program to avoid spending $2.2 million a year on administration and offer better nutrition, administration officials have said. The letter cited a recent Iowa State Extension report on food insecurity in Lynn County that found more than 24,000 residents experienced food insecurity, including 7,550 children under age 18. This figure includes almost 4,000 children who are likely 
income ineligible to receive federal nutrition assistance, the letter states. This number will surely increase with Governor Reynolds' decision to end the summer EBT program for children. The Lynn County Board of Supervisors welcomes a collaboration with the USDA to find common-sense solutions to a growing problem that affects our community's most cherished and vulnerable population, children. Polk County, the state's largest, also sent a similar letter requesting the USDA instead send aid to the county, the Des Moines Register has reported. According to Local 5, an ABC affiliate in Des Moines, Vilsack said the law prohibits the USDA from working with individual counties. We are limited to working with states, territories, and tribes, so we can't work with any other political subdivision, he told the TV station. New article, Marion Named Community of Year. Marion was named Community of the Year for 2023 by Community Playmaker, a media platform that provides news, features, and trends highlighting American communities and civic leaders. The city of 41,864 was chosen from nearly 100 small, midsize, and large communities that entered the contest. It honors cities and leaders who spark progress and have initiatives that fuel economic development, foster community engagement, support public safety, amplify arts and culture, and build inclusive, high-quality environments. Cities from around the country submitted entries for the Community of the Year Award. The size of communities ranged from towns with a little more than 1,000 residents to some of America's largest and most well-known cities and everything in between. An expert panel reviewed entries for criteria, including the scope of the quality of life projects that were launched and each project's impact, among other items. Marion is a great example of what can happen when a community, both its leaders and citizens, cast a vision for a tremendous quality of life for everyone. And the power is not just in the vision, it's also in the determination Marion leaders showed driving these projects through to completion, said Ashley Whitaker, editor-in-chief of Community Playmaker. The recognition specifically acknowledged city and civic leaders' efforts on a new 75,000-square-foot recreation facility in collaboration with the YMCA, transformation of the uptown artway from an unused alleyway into a concert and art venue, and a state-of-the-art library with a recording studio, teen area, art studio, demonstration kitchen, quilting machine, and 3D printer. We are grateful for the recognition as it places Marion on a national stage and endorses our focus on serving residents and giving them the best opportunities for an unequal quality of life, Marion Mayor Nick Aboasili said in a statement. Marion's success is hard-earned by an energized team that works together and engages the entire community in moving the city forward. Teachers Union names new director. Coy Marquardt was named the new executive director of the Iowa State Education Association, which represents more than 50,000 pre-K through 12 educators and promotes public education by advocating for education professionals. Marquardt, whose wife is Lynn County Supervisor Kirsten Running Marquardt, will begin in his position March 1st. I have dedicated my career to fighting for the best possible education for every child in Iowa, Marquardt said in a news release. I am excited to continue working alongside our dedicated members, promoting and protecting our profession, students, and public schools. Marquardt said he has large shoes to fill in replacing Mary Jane Cobb, who has led the organization for more than 15 years. 
Her passion and commitment to ISEA members and students have helped build ISEA into the powerhouse we are today. I look forward to continuing her legacy of excellence, Marquardt said. Marquardt's career in public education spans two decades, beginning as a special education paraprofessional and later as a junior high school teacher. He joined ISEA in 2006 as a Uniserve director, serving local associations in the Cedar Rapids and Iowa City area. In 2016, Marquardt became Associate Executive Director of Field Services. In this role, he supported ISEA's local affiliates and developed innovative programs to attract and retain new members. Coy is a passionate advocate for educators and students, and his deep understanding of the challenges and opportunities facing public education in Iowa makes him the perfect person to lead ISEA into the future, ISEA President Mike Baranek said. His proven track record in bargaining, recertification, and membership engagement will be invaluable. Westdale Housing Units Reduced The developer behind Westdale Mall's redevelopment is reducing the number of residential units in a housing project that received state workforce housing tax credits last year. Fru Development Group was awarded $1 million in tax credits from the Iowa Economic Development Authority last year, but is cutting its initially proposed 200 units to 148 as part of Parkway West Apartments. The $25.5 million housing project includes the construction of three multifamily buildings, two 52-unit buildings, and one 44-unit building. There will be 58 one-bedroom units, 78 two-bedroom units, and 12 three-bedroom units. Instead of a fourth residential building, the developer is looking to build a 6,000-square-foot restaurant pad and associated parking. The council approved these changes last week as part of the meeting's consent agenda where matters considered routine are approved in a single block and are not discussed. Iowa City Home Builders Invited to Event The City of Iowa City and Greater Iowa City Incorporated will host a lunch and learn event to discuss recent changes to Iowa City zoning code and incentive programs relevant to residential developers and home builders. The program will be Thursday at Merge, Iowa City, 136 South Dubuque Street. Lunch is provided and sponsored by the Greater Iowa City Home Builders Association. Lunch will be served at 11.30 a.m. with the program to follow. Speakers will include city staff from Neighborhood and Development Services and Climate Action and Outreach. Participants will have the opportunity to ask questions. Pre-register online through the Greater Iowa City Incorporated website at member.greateriowacity.com. School registration opens in February. Preschool and kindergarten registration for the 2024-25 school year for students in the Cedar Rapids Community School District will open Thursday. The district offers a variety of options for local children, including three- and four-year-old preschool, alternative kindergarten, and traditional kindergarten. Full-day kindergarten is offered at all 20 elementary schools in the district Monday through Friday from 8.50 a.m. to 3.50 p.m. The elementary school each child will attend is determined by their family's home address. To enroll in kindergarten for the next school year, a child must be five on or before September 15th. If a four-year-old attends one of the district's preschool programs with an address in Cedar Rapids School District boundaries, 
the family will receive an email from the district with special registration instructions. If a child needs an additional year to grow and develop before entering kindergarten, a full-day alternative kindergarten program might be the right option for them. Families interested in pursuing this option can complete the regular kindergarten registration form and indicate an interest in alternative kindergarten. Cedar Rapids schools also offer both three- and four-year-old preschool. Students are eligible to apply for preschool for the 2024-25 school year if they are turning three or four on or before September 15th. Half-day three- and four-year-old preschool is free and offered Monday through Thursday. The morning session is from 8.50 to 11.50 a.m., and the afternoon session is from 12.50 to 3.50 p.m. The three-year-old classes are very limited and only available at Cedar River Academy and Grant Wood. Four-year-old preschool, on the other hand, has several classes at eight different buildings around the district. Families are responsible for transportation for students attending a half-day preschool program. Cedar Rapids School's full-day four-year-old preschool is free and located at Truman Early Childhood Center. It is offered Monday through Thursday from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Busing is offered to and from school for four-year-olds participating in this program. Okay, I'm going to now turn to the Opinion Insight section with the community letters. Our first letter is from Erin Reinecke of Marion. Book shows why some Vietnam vets don't discuss their tours. If there are any books I would recommend people considering reading, one recent choice would be an autobiography detailing a man's tour of duty in Vietnam. If I Die in a Combat Zone, Box Me Up and Ship Me Home by Tim O'Brien offers a personal look at his experience as infantry in the Vietnam War. From enduring jeers from his supervisors during basic training to surviving harsh guerrilla combat in the jungles of Vietnam, O'Brien gives an in-depth perspective textbooks would lack. This book details many instances of the horrors of that war and how it affected so many soldiers. And it posed a significant question, what is courage? Reading this gave me greater, albeit incomplete, insight on what some good friends of mine had witnessed, done, or lost. I still feel like I'm scratching the surface of what happened at the time, but I see why they avoid discussing it. And again, that was from Aaron Reinecke of Marion. Our next letter. Unity. I am so tired of hearing candidates say, vote for us to save America. The rhetoric behind that statement is the polarizing wedge being driven into our country today. Our nation has become so divided on current issues and beliefs. I find it ironic when I hear nominees calling for unity. It seems to me, and many others, the good of the country and the function of the Hill have been compromised. The focus on getting and staying elected outweighs the productivity of our government. When Democrats had the majority in Congress, along with the Democrat in the White House, that was intolerable, intolerable and injustice. I heard many Republicans saying just how wrong that was. Yet, with the primaries beginning to take place, I have heard them say we need a majority in the House, Senate, and a Republican in the White House. I feel a government for the people and by the people means equal representation on the Hill and in our state legislatures. No state is 100% red or blue. Therefore, governing bodies should consist of equal numbers of party affiliation. Nothing should pass through without 66% of the vote. Also, get rid of the Electoral College. You should not have to move to another state for your presidential vote to count. 
One can only hope people will begin to read between the lines when evaluating what's being said by both parties. And that letter was from Randy Stransberry of Walker. And we have one short column here I could read by Norman Sherman. Careful use of careless words. Donald Trump is not the inspiration of today's Republican Party right wing. He certainly is a contributing partner, but not the designer. He is instead the heir to the leadership of Newt Gingrich, who was Speaker of the House from 1995 to 1999. Gingrich was first elected to Congress in 1979, a mean-spirited Georgian who came north propelled by venom, incivility, and ego. He got some of that from the Reagan staff, but he added a fine-tuned rhetoric. Gingrich is smart. He has a Ph.D. in history and was a college professor. He made his mark in the House and in Washington as a compulsive philanderer. His second wife said he had asked for an open marriage. She refused, and they were divorced, making way for Callista, whom Donald Trump later named as our ambassador to the Vatican. Gingrich helped instill name-calling as a deliberate art form for Republican candidates and officeholders. He defined the poetry of right-wing partisanship. He provided his colleagues the words to use. He said language is a key method of control. He advised them to describe Democrats with words like corrupt, cheat, disgrace, endanger, failure, hypocrisy, intolerant, liberal, lie, pathetic, sick, steal, traitors, waste, welfare, and abuse of power. Power mattered to him. The truth did not. I have no printable words to describe him. Tax relief for the wealthy was his main mission in Congress. He also was a leader in shutting down our government twice. If Gingrich ever reached across the aisle, it was to goose a Democrat. He left Congress when he was reprimanded by the House. The vote was 395 to 28, hardly a partisan divide. He was fined $300,000 for reckless or intentional use of nonprofits for clearly illegal purposes. Donald Trump might have discovered name-calling on his own, but Newt Gingrich made the way easier. Trump's addiction to nasty is nonpartisan. He called Jeb Bush low energy, Marco Rubio little Marco. He gave Democrats equal time with crooked Hillary. Amarosa Newman, who worked in the White House for both Trump and Bill Clinton, was wacky and deranged, a crazed, crying lowlife. His vile tongue went beyond political people. Stormy Daniels was horseface. James Comey has been FBI director. He was an untruthful slimeball and a leaker and liar. He filled in the details, as time has proved, a terrible director of the FBI. His handling of the crooked Hillary Clinton case and the events surrounding it will go down as one of the worst botched jobs of history. It was my great honor to fire James Comey. Gingrich was right. Language is a tool and an effective one to label and denigrate, a useful tool for irresponsible politicians. Then and now, they desecrate. Trump has proved it. To use a few words I might have learned from them, they are creeps, crazies, and traitors to what really makes America great. Truth and decency are not burdens they carry. Oh, I think I just got a message from Stormy Daniels. Horse face says Donald Trump is not a horse's face. And you are listening to the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material, <clears throat> excuse me, all material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we're, we will turn to today's obituaries. Lois Marie Loki, 81, of Manchester, passed away on Saturday, January 27th, at her home, surrounded by her family. 
She was born on August 16, 1942, in Monticello, the daughter of Lois, excuse me, Lewis and Florence Murray Smith. Lois was raised and educated in Worthington and was a graduate of St. Paul Catholic High School. She attended Briarcliff College in Sioux City. Lois earned her associate's degree at Northeast Iowa Community College in Piosta. On November 27, 1964, Lois was married to Walter Loki in Washington. I'm sorry, in Worthington. They had nine children, and the family lived and farmed in rural Greeley. The couple later divorced. Lois moved to Manchester in 1991 and worked for the West Delaware School District for many years. She was a longtime member of St. Joseph and St. Mary Catholic Churches and the Catholic Daughters of the Americas. Lois was preceded in death by her parents, two children, Andy Loki and Sally Loki. She is survived by her seven children, Linda Mayo of White River Junction, Vermont, Cindy Parker of Bellevue, Pete Loki of Rose Hill, Kansas, Mike Loki of Manchester, Tim Loki of Manchester, Peggy Harbaugh of Piosta, and Mandy Munzer of Golden, Colorado. 21 grandchildren, one great-granddaughter, a brother Lloyd Smith of New Vienna, one sister Marilyn Rubner of Arlington, and aunt Carolyn Hunt of Edgewood, and many nieces and nephews. Mass of Christian Burial will be at 11 a.m. on Thursday, February 1st, at St. Mary Catholic Church in Manchester, with Reverend Gabriel Anderson officiating. Visitation is from 3 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday, January 31st, at Leonard Muller Funeral Home in Manchester, with a 2 p.m. scripture service. Friends may call from 9.30 to 10.45 a.m. before the Mass at the church on Thursday. Internment will be at St. Joseph Catholic Cemetery in Greeley. Bradley Glick, 53, of Cedar Rapids, passed away unexpectedly at home on January 15th. As per his wishes, cremation has taken place. A gathering of family and friends will take place at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home on Sunday, February 4th, from 2 to 4 p.m. Bradley was born in Cedar Rapids on June 30th, 1970. He lived most of his life in the Cedar Rapids, Marion area. He attended school in the Marion School District. He was the happiest when he was riding his motorcycle. He loved the wind in his face. He would say it had a calming effect, just him and his bike. He also liked to collect world globes and elephants. He survived by his sons Gage and Dakota, his brother Robert G. Glick of New Hartford, his mother and stepfather Judy and Dennis Sukan of Marion, his father Robert Glick of Cedar Rapids, and cousins, nieces, and nephews. Mary Louise Newman 97, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on Thursday, January 25th at Keystone Cedars Assisted Living in Cedar Rapids. Visitation will be held from 5 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday, January 30th at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Cedar Rapids. Memorial service will begin at 1 p.m. on Wednesday, January 31st at the funeral home. Private family internment at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery will be held at a later time. Mary was born on December 16, 1926, in Cedar Rapids, the daughter of Paul R. and Alice A. Weber Harrison. She was a graduate of Wilson High School. On October 27, 1946, Mary was united in marriage to Lewis Cutler Newman in Cedar Rapids. She was a homemaker and member of Trinity Methodist Church. She was a part of the Twirling Travelers Square Dance Club and traveled the United States I'm sorry, I'm going to start that sentence again. Mary was part of the Twirling Travelers Square Dance Club and traveling in the United States camping. She was an avid sewer, 
making kids clothes, quilts for church, and hats for hospice patients. She enjoyed spending time with grandchildren. She is survived and lovingly remembered by her children, Terry Newman of Cedar Rapids and Sandra Dabrowski of Nightdale, North Carolina. Five granddaughters, Jennifer, Sarah, Volden, sorry, excuse me, Jennifer Semmelroth, Sarah Volden, Christy Charkowski, Katie Privet, and Elizabeth Palmer. Thirteen great-grandchildren and brother Jim Harrison of California. Richard Dick Lee Brazina, 84, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on Friday, January 26th. Richard Lee Brazina was born May 16, 1939, in Vining, the son of Joseph and Rose Balvin Brazina. After graduating high school, he served in the U.S. Army. On September 16, 1961, he married Marion Faye DeMeyer at Belle Plaine. Dick worked at Hawkeye Ready Mix for many years, retiring in 2001. He enjoyed gardening and spending time with his family. Survivors include his children, Ricky of South Korea, Timothy of Atlanta, Chad of Swisher, and Jill of Cedar Rapids. Siblings Rosie Hartmeyer of Belle Plaine, Margie Emerson of Belle Plaine, Marcella Klein of Swisher, Arlene Tubbs of Swisher, Caroline Zack of Guttenberg, Bernard Brazina of Tama, sister and brothers-in-law Jack DeMeyer of Belle Plaine, Rose Reinhardt of Cedar Rapids, Gary DeMeyer of Fairfield. He was preceded in death by his parents, spouse Marion Faye Brazina in 2014, siblings Lillian Lund, Edward Brazina, Gladys Brazina, Joseph Brazina Jr., Leonard Brazina, and brother-in-law Steve Reinhardt. Funeral services with military rites will be held at 11 a.m. on Thursday, February 1st at the Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories, where visitation starts at 9 a.m. Entombment will be held in Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Sandra Siebert, Sandra J. Siebert, 87, of Belle Plaine, bid farewell to this world on January 1st. Born on March 23, 1936 in Iowa City, Sandy was a force to be reckoned with, capturing hearts with her infectious charm and caring nature. She was also the ultimate Iowa fan, cheering on her beloved Hawkeyes with unmatched passion. She is survived by her nephews Scott Siebert of Lake in the Hills, Illinois, and Stephen of Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, along with her great nieces and nephew Clara, Lydia, Sophia, and Noah. Sandy's family meant the world to her. Her journey through education led her to the University of Iowa, where she earned her Bachelor of Arts degree, and then to St. Mary's of Notre Dame, where she earned her nursing degree. She started her career as a registered nurse and nursing educator in Boston and Chicago, but her heart led her to a career with the American Heart Association in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, where she served proudly in many positions and retired as an executive after 30 years. Celebration of Sandy's life will be at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, February 3rd at St. Edward's Catholic Church in Waterloo with her final resting place at Mount Olivet Cemetery. In honor of her memory, contributions can be made to St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Iowa City or St. Edward's Church in Waterloo. Robert Dave David Rowell, 78, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully surrounded by his family after a sudden illness on Thursday, January 25th at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Services are at 11 a.m. Saturday, February 3rd at Tehan Funeral Home. Friends may visit with the family after 10 a.m. at the funeral home. Dave is survived by his wife of 51 years, Therese Rowell, daughter Lindsay Bokey of Huntley, Illinois, two grandchildren, Ella and Addison, 
two brothers, Mark Roll and William Rowell, and one sister, Lois Bailey. Dave was preceded in death by his parents, Robert and Sally, father and mother-in-law, William and Pauline Reed, and brother-in-law, Paul Reed. Robert David Rowell was born on August 28, 1945, son of Robert and Flozella Sally King Rowell in Cedar Rapids. He graduated from Washington High School in 1963 and attended the University of Iowa. Dave was a journeyman printer at the Gazette before and after his military service. He proudly served in the United States Air Force from 1965 to 1971. Dave was united in marriage to Therese Reed on June 10, 1972, at the Calvin Sinclair Presbyterian Church in Cedar Rapids. Dave worked as a police officer for the Cedar Rapids Police Department for 30 years, retiring in 2005 as a lieutenant. Orville Peter Meyer, 88, of Anamosa, passed away on Friday, January 26th, at the Anamosa Care Center. A memorial service will be held on Wednesday, January 31st at 11.30 a.m. with a visitation from 9 to 11 a.m. at First Congregational Church in Anamosa. Orville Peter Meyer was born on December 11, 1935, to Neman and Vera Fass Meyer in Monticello. He graduated from Martell High School in 1955. Orville proudly served in the U.S. Army during the Korean conflict. <clears throat> he was united in marriage to Judy Tallman. To this union, three children, Connie, Carolyn, and James, were born. They later divorced. He was united in marriage to Loretta Hamilton on December 21, 1991. Orville farmed and worked at FMC Goss and Food Waste Solutions until his retirement in 2003. He enjoyed trips to the casino, fishing, playing cards, and being with family and friends. Left to cherish his memories are his wife, Loretta Meyer of Anamosa, children, Connie Hupp of Ely, Carolyn Walker of Anamosa, and James Meyer of Anamosa. Stepsons Mark Hamilton of Cedar Rapids and Corey Hamilton of Troy Mills. Grandchildren Jessica Hupp, Joshua Hupp, Jennifer Hupp, Brooke Bolkin, Joel Walker, Emily and Wesley Meyer, and Madison Hamilton. Six great-grandchildren, his sister Ruth Collins of Viola, many nieces and nephews. <coughs> Excuse me. Darlene Lois Schwarting was born November 14, 1933, at her home in Lincoln Township, Iowa County, the daughter of Henry and Rosa Rogantine Brown. She graduated from Marengo High School in 1952. Darlene was united in marriage to Duane Schwarting on August 15, 1953, at St. John's Lutheran Church in Marengo. They made their home near Homestead, where they raised their family and farmed. Darlene was a homemaker, working side-by-side on the farm with Duane. She was a member of Trinity Lutheran Church in Conroy. She enjoyed square dancing, bowling, and spending time with family. Darlene died Sunday, January 28th at Compass Memorial Hospital in Marengo at the age of 90 years. She's survived by her husband of 70 years, Dwayne of Homestead, son Kevin of Sh- Kevin Schwarting, Schwarting of Homestead, granddaughter Natalie Schwarting, and grandson Jess Liebold. She was preceded in death by her parents, son Daryl Schwarting, three brothers, Gene Brown, Robert Brown at nine months, and Carol Dean Brown in infancy, and a half-brother, Melvin Brown. Celebration of Life will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Wednesday, January 31st at the Trinity Lutheran Church in Conroy. Burial will be in the Trinity Lutheran Cemetery. Visitation will be Tuesday from 4 to 7 p.m. at Powell Funeral Home in Williamsburg. Kathleen K. Miller Appelhans of Monmouth was 71 when she passed away peacefully 
at home surrounded by her family on January 25th after a courageous battle with cancer and Parkinson's disease. Kathleen K. Miller was born on February 28, 1952 in Maquoketa to Forrest and Dixie Butt Miller. After graduating from Midland Community High School in 1970, she embarked on a path of service and community involvement that would define much of her life. Her first job at the Ben Franklin in Maquoketa was a stepping stone to what would become a lifetime of meaningful work and relationships. Married to the love of her life, Dennis, on February 20, 1971, in Monmouth, they cultivated a life rich with love and hard work on their farm. Kathy's innate ability to nurture extended beyond her family to the animals she and Dennis raised, from sheep to pigs and cattle, always with a gentle touch and a heart full of compassion. She poured her energy into 4-H program, serving as a leader and on the 4-H Extension Council for a decade. A celebration of her life will be held at 10 a.m. Wednesday, January 31st at Carson Celebration of Life Center in Maquoketa. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, January 30th at Carson Celebration of Life Center in Maquoketa. Burial will be at the Monmouth, Iowa Cemetery. Those left to honor her memory include her husband, Dennis of Monmouth, sons Dan of Central City, Matt of Anamosa. She was a proud grandmother to Miranda, Jacqueline, Gabby, Addison, and Garrett, and a delighted great-grandmother to Jameson. Sister, Carmen Margison of Baldwell, Uncle George Butt of Durand, Illinois, brother-in-law, David Applehans of Ankeny, sister-in-law, Pam Spain of Maquoketa, nephews, Shad Patterson, of Maquoketa and Brett Margison of Bellevue. She was preceded in death by her parents, Forrest and Dixie Miller, father and mother-in-law, Jack and Shirley Applehans, nephew, Nick Margison, infant brothers, Terry and Forrest, two brothers-in-law, and one sister-in-law. Okay, we're going to read from the sports section, and we're going to start with what you can catch on TV today. In the NBA, the Suns will be at the Heat at 6.30 p.m. on NBA TV. The 76ers will be at the Trailblazers at 9 p.m. also on NBA TV. In men's basketball, Boston University is at Holy Cross at 6 p.m. on the CBS Sports Network. Duke is at Virginia Tech at 6 p.m. on ESPN. Houston is at Texas at 8 p.m. on ESPN. Alcorn State is at Bethune-Cookman at 8 p.m. on ESPN2. In women's basketball, Boston University at Holy Cross at 3 p.m. on CBS Sports Network, and LSU at Mississippi State at 6 p.m. on ESPN2. You can also catch women's gymnastics with Illinois State at Ohio State at 6 p.m. on BTN. Okay, we'll go to one of the headlines here. Iowa football, Lester on board. Ference Tabs, former Western Michigan head coach to fill offensive coordinator vacancy. This is by John Stepp out of Iowa City. The biggest question mark of the Iowa football offseason now has an answer. Iowa is expected to hire former Western Michigan head coach Tim Lester as its next offensive coordinator, according to reports by ESPN's Adam Rittenberg and FootballScoop.com. Lester most recently was a senior analyst for the Green Bay Packers following his six-year tenure at Western Michigan. Hired to replace P.J. Fleck, Lester was 37-32 and 32 as a head coach and took the Broncos to three bowl games before getting fired in 2022. 
Kirk Ferentz said on his radio show ahead of the 2023 game against Western Michigan that he was a little curious about the coaching change. Tim Lester had been up there and they had a really nice program going with him, Ferentz said at the time. The Broncos finished 40th or better in points per game in five of Lester's six seasons as head coach at Western Michigan, including as high as a tie for ninth in the COVID-19-affected 2020 season. The exception was Lester's final season with the Broncos, when they finished 118th in points per game and 124th in yards per game en route to a 5-7 season. The Western Michigan alum also had stints on the Syracuse and Purdue staff as quarterbacks coach. He was Syracuse's offensive coordinator as well in 2014 and 2015. Syracuse was tied for 118th nationally in points per game in his first season as offensive coordinator and improved to 77th in 2015. He was not retained with the Orange staff when head coach Scott Schaefer was fired. Other candidates for Iowa's offensive coordinator vacancy included former Duke offensive coordinator Kevin Johns, who traveled to Iowa City to meet with Kirk Ferentz late last week. Sunday's news marks the end of a two-plus-month period of uncertainty at the offensive coordinator position, which began with Beth Getz's October 30th announcement that Brian Ferentz will not be retained after the 2023 season. The completed search, while taking longer than Kirk Ferentz's previous timeline of finishing it by the third week of January, still gives Iowa's new offensive coordinator more than a month to acclimate before spring practices begin. Lester will be looking to improve an offense that ranked dead last in yards per game and yards per play last year. The Hawkeyes also were 120th or worse in points per game, completion percentage, third down efficiency, and other key metrics. Lester will be Iowa's fourth offensive coordinator during the Kirk Ferentz era, following Ken O'Keefe, 1999-2011, Greg Davis, 2012-2016, and Brian Ferentz, 2017-2023. Lester joins Davis as the only other person to have FBS experience as an offensive coordinator before taking the Iowa job. Lester will benefit from the expected return of quarterback Cade McNamara, tight end Luke Leahy, and several experienced offensive linemen, along with the addition of former Alabama offensive lineman Caden Proctor. The Hawkeyes still have one assistant coach position open after wide receivers coach Kelton Copeland's contract was not renewed. Okay, I'm going to read an article here about girls wrestling. And I'm not sure how to pronounce this girl's last name. P-F-A-B. I'm going to say Fab. Fab adds to Xavier history as first girls' state qualifier. This is by Riley Cole out of Cedar Rapids. On Friday afternoon, Eleanor Fab was smiling from ear to ear. It wasn't only because she had punched her ticket to the this week's IGH-SAU state tournament. It also was because she had etched her name in history, becoming Xavier's first state qualifier in girls' wrestling. The feeling doesn't get much better than that. It feels really good, Fab said. I'm proud of myself. Coming from the first meet of the season until now is a really big achievement that I've done. I started crying after because I was so happy. With this season being the first for Xavier, head coach Henry Reichs knows this is a special accomplishment for the Saints program and Fab. It's phenomenal that in our first year we are able to get a state qualifier, Reichs said. To get it from a freshman is just outstanding. 
Fab qualified for state by finishing in fourth place in the Region 5 115-pound weight class after falling to Sylvia Garcia-Vasquez of West Liberty by a narrow 8-6 to decision in the third-place match. However, finishing in fourth place didn't happen without a fight. She had to come back after a loss in the semifinals to Kaylin Ryder of Pleasant Valley, who went on to win the Region 5 115-pound title. Just because you have to wrestle your way back doesn't mean you can't get there. State, Fab said. I wanted to make it happen. Reichs had just as big of a smile on his face Friday afternoon as he enjoyed witnessing history being made by the Saints freshman. As her coach, Reichs has had a front row seat to Fab's development as a wrestler, and he believes her success on the mat is a testament to her hard work and drive to get better in practice. She's done everything we've asked her to do, Reichs said. She is such a coachable athlete. I could not be more happy or proud for her. I cannot say enough about how hard she works. She She's deserved this. Even though Fab is the lone saint who will be competing in the state tournament starting Thursday in Coralville, the season isn't over for Xavier. The team will practice alongside her to get her prepared for her state tournament run. Once a week, always a team, a concept that has been instilled in the Xavier girls wrestling program from day one. And I'm sorry, that was once a team, always a team. Everybody will come into the practice room because we are a team, Reich said. All of her teammates will be there helping us and pushing her. We have three more practices left, so we are going to take advantage of that. She will be there for Eleanor to get her. We will be there for Eleanor to get her where she needs to be to get ready for Thursday and Friday. In her state tournament debut, Fab has set her sights high. With her team behind her, there are no limits for what the freshman can do. She knows she can reach her goals with hard work, just as she's done all season. I really want to finish third or higher, but fifth or higher is okay too, Fab said. I have to push it and work really hard to get to where I want to go. Okay, I'm going to go back and finish our government notes. We just had one short little article here about Jefferson students finalists in contest. Ten students from Jefferson High School have been named finalists in the Iowa State Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division Know Your Constitution project. Lucas Barger, Danielle Boche, Boche, B-O-C-H-E, Anna Fultz, Rachel Johnson, Sophia Kevitt, Maya Kirchhoff, Himidi Kundu, Joseph Peters, Chase Thompson-William, and Hina Zishan, all students in Chris Roll's College U.S. History course at Jefferson High School, are among the 100 finalists selected from across the state. The Know Your Constitution project aims to enrich students' understanding of the Constitution. As part of the contest, students must familiarize themselves with Constitution-related issues, complete a quiz, and respond to an essay question. This year's essay topic focused on a legislative proposal to raise the voting age to 21. The finalists were honored at an award luncheon Friday in Des Moines, where five of the finalists were randomly chosen to receive a scholarship in recognition of their efforts. This marks the 20th consecutive year that Jefferson has had a student named as a finalist in this competition. And riders face hilliest route ever in 2024's Rag Bribe. Thousands of riders this July will tackle the most hilly route ever in the 51-year history of the Register's annual Great Bicycle Ride across Iowa. The 2024 route, announced last Saturday, 
late Saturday will take riders July 20th through the 27th from Glenwood in western Iowa along a southern route ending in Burlington. At 424 miles, the route is the eighth shortest in RAGBRAI's history, organizers said. A RAGBRAI Expo will be held July 20th in Glenwood. Then the route and overnight towns are announced are Day 1, Riders leave Glenwood on July 21st and travel 44 miles over 2,955 feet of climb to Red Oak. Day 2, riders leave Red Oak on July 22nd and travel 40 miles over 1,695 feet of climb to Atlantic. Day 3, riders leave Atlantic on July 23rd and travel 79 miles over 4,384 feet of climb to Winterset. Day 4, riders leave Winterset on July 24th and travel 74 miles over 3,039 feet of climb to Knoxville. Five, excuse me, Day 5, riders leave Knoxville on July 25th and travel 60 miles over 2,441 feet of climb to Ottumwa. Day 6, riders leave Ottumwa on July 26th and travel 82 miles over 3,124 feet of climb to Mount Pleasant. And finally, Day 7, riders leave Mount Pleasant on July 27th and travel 45 miles over 1,099 feet of climb to Burlington. That's 18,737 feet of climb over the entire route. Meet-up towns and an optional century loop to reach 100 miles in a day will be announced later. Registration for this summer's rag ride began in November and its early bird prices are in effect until February 29 when the cost goes up. Week-long rider passes currently are $225, and day passes for just part of the ride currently are $45. To register and find more information on the ride, visit ragbri.com. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. (laughs) 